another edition of the Black Stock Triangle, an Arsenal podcast. I'm your host, Alex. Once again, alongside me is Nelly. Nelly, how are you? I'm all right, Alex. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. And, well, what a performance. What a win. I mean, performance, ugh, yeah, look, it was a bit of a cagey game. It seemed both. It seemed that both managers, they were sort of trying to test each other um, tactically. But a massive three points against Manchester City. Uh, what what do you make of, of that? In, not only in terms of, I guess, the performance, but in terms of for the rest of the season, the confidence. Um, how do you feel that result is going to affect Arsenal in the long run? Well, it was a fantastic result, if not the performance, but it was the result that matters. And I, I think this could be... If Arsenal win the league this year, and I think that we will, I'm still remaining confident. We still haven't lost a game, and we're joint top of the league. It's only goals scored that separates us from first. We're level on points and goal difference with Tottenham in first, so I think we can win the league. Uh, I think this will be the game we'll look back on as the one that won it for us. Last season, Man City finished five points above Arsenal and beat Arsenal twice. So that we've won that game... It's not worth three points against Man City. It's worth six. It's three points well, yeah. they didn't get. Absolutely. Because if you think about it, if we had done that last season, they would have ended up on 86 points and we would end up on 87 points. Exactly. So, so we, I really be... think this is this is our one. This is our game that's, that's, that could be the one we look back on as one of the, us the uh, league. It's definitely one we didn't win last season. We lost. So... Overall, I think it was very, uh, very good result. The result is, was perfect. Uh, the performance, not ideal. We were missing a few good players. It was a very cagey tactical game, as you said, with the two managers in the league who probably know each other the best, not just because they played against each other, but because they've worked together for many years when Arteta was a coach at Manchester City. So they know no managers in the league know each other better. Both were quite able to predict what the other was going to do. And both teams were really missing some key men. Uh, Arsenal, we didn't have Saka play at all. Martinelli wasn't able to start. And obviously we have Timber out as well. Whereas Man City would have missed Rodri and De Bruyne, re- arguably their two best players. Haaland would obviously be in with a contention for their best. But that's two of their three best players. Same as Arsenal with Saka and Martinelli. And it was a very cagey game, and it was won by one lucky deflected shot, and I'm glad it was ours, really. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I totally agree. I think, um, you know, obviously missing Saka from the starting lineup was a bit of a, like, oh, you know. And then i got to be honest, and, and I'm not trying to bash uh, Jorginho, but when I saw him in the midfield, I thought, oh, Oh, this could be long. But having said that, when I saw Man City's midfield, Rico Lewis, Kovacic, I was like, hmm, you know, I kind of, although, look, I was pessimistic purely because, you know, we haven't beaten Man City for, what is it, eight years. Um, so for me, it was like, well, you know, I would definitely, I erred on the side of pessimism, because, or the erred on the side of being pessimistic because, I just thought, oh, you know, here we go again. But there was a part of me that I, I kind of looked at it. And, and I, I, you know, it's one of those things where 
although we probably didn't have our strongest team, they didn't have their strongest team either. And it kind of felt like this could potentially be a KG match because both managers would have recognized, oh, you know, I'm missing a couple of key players, you know, and, and we need to try and see what we can do to get a result. Um, yeah, I, I just, I'm, I'm so happy with, you know, us getting those three points against Man City. Not obviously because, you know, we're now joint top. We're looking good. We're undefeated in the league. We're looking, you know, ominous. And, and, and I think a lot of people, you know, have said, and we've said on this pod, we haven't looked our best. But the fact that we're just getting results at this moment in time is huge because if we do start to hit the ground, then we can only really get better. Having said that, I would argue that we haven't performed poorly at the beginning of this season. I just think, obviously, the pace hasn't been... We haven't hit the ground running like we did last season, and so therefore people are comparing it and looking at last season and saying, well, it's not last season. But what I will say is I actually saw that we're we're actually plus two in terms of points based on the same fixtures that we played last season because... Although we've we beat Fulham and Tottenham last season at home, and we drew we drew those games this season, we've beaten Everton and now Man City at home, and we lost both those games. Sorry, we beat Everton away and we beat Man City at home, and we lost both of those fixtures last season. So although we've dropped four points Fulham against Fulham and Tottenham, we've also gained six against Everton and Man City. Um, so yeah, I you know we. I feel like we're on. The, we could potentially. I'm not probably not as optimistic as you in terms of us. We are going to win the league. Um, maybe that's just because of the heartbreak of last season, and also knowing that Man City, you know, once once they get a run going, they can become an absolute monster. But I, there is definitely sort of an underlying confidence within me. I have to say, um, with how we're performing right now and the fact that we have such a big squad, you know, I mean, let, let's talk about, I guess, more of the starting lineup. Saka was missing. We obviously didn't end up needing him. But what did you make of the starting lineup? Obviously, Eddie and Kedia up front again, Jesus on the right wing. Like I mentioned, Jorginho starting. Um, obviously, Zinchenko started as well. Um, you, you could have thought maybe Tomiyasu might have came, came in. But what, what did you make of the starting lineup? Well, go, starting from the back, well, I think Raya's going to be our starting goalkeeper. I think for the big games, I said when they weren't starting that centre-back partnership of Saliba and Gabriel at the beginning of the season, I said I expected Arsenal would start those two against the better teams in the league, like Man City. So I'm not surprised to see those two starting. Uh, then we had... White and Zinchenko, I believe, as left and right back. That's probably our best back four defence. Uh, that's the back four defence we had when everyone was fit last season. And uh, potentially Timber may force his way into that team when he's fully fit. I definitely prefer Ben White at right back to Thomas Partey at right back. So Tommy Ayasu we may see coming in, but I think that is probably our strongest back four. Um, our strongest midfield I don't think would include Jorginho I think we'll see either Partey or Havertz taking that spot 
Uh, although Jorginho didn't play badly, I, I felt he played very badly against Tottenham. I felt he was really at fault for the uh, goal he gave away. But Jorginho didn't play badly in the last game. Rice obviously is a fantastic player. Rice would make, I think, any Premier League team. And then we had uh, Trossard. I believe we had on Trossard and Ketia and Jesus and Odegaard as well, obviously, in central midfield. I think Trossard did not play well enough to justify him being a regular starter when everybody's fit. He's an okay player, Trossard. He played very well for Brighton. He's had he scored good goals for Arsenal. He's had his moments. But if he's going to push his way into the starting eleven when everyone's fit, he's going to have to play better than he did that first half against Manchester City. He wasn't effective and he didn't do much defensively either. His pressing is not as good as Martinelli's. Maybe we're spoiled as Arsenal fans for left-wingers because we've been used to having Martinelli for the last couple of years. He's been very good. But I think Trossard is the player in that starting eleven. I expect to not keep his space, not keep his place. And maybe Jorginho. But Jorginho is a proven quality player, even if he's not quite done it for us. And he's had lots of good games for Italy. I think Jorginho might challenge Partey and Havertz. Trossard will lose his space when everyone's fit, unless he pulls out an amazing performance soon. Yeah, I think, yeah, I definitely agree with Trossard. And look, it's one of those things where when Martin only came on at half time, you know, in the first 10 minutes of that half, you could see such a difference. I mean, it was actually, yeah, it was just, it was, it was quite mind-boggling. You know, Martinelli comes, he's just, he's so direct with his running. You know, Martinelli, he just gets the ball and he runs. He's so confident in his dribbling, and he, and he, he dribbles with pace. You know, there are so many players that just don't do that in world football. You know, I think Drossard is more of that trickery kind of winger. You know, he's not, he's not going to be that, that, that player that just runs at at the opposition. And yeah, Martinelli, he just loves he gets the ball and he runs at just such pace towards his defender. Just not like almost with no fear. Um and I think that really kind of you could even see uh Carl Walker was a bit more circumspect in what he was doing in defense because he thought, oh man, you know, <laughs> Martinelli comes on, starts sort of stretching the play a little bit. And we did see that a little bit I guess in the second half, where the play was starting to get not not it wasn't too stretched, because it looked like, uh, especially when Pep brought on his subs, they went with a four-one-four-one. Um, so he really tried to sort of pack the midfield, Pep Guardiola. Um, so it didn't look too stretched, but yeah, just Martinelli is just such a quality player. He's a very underrated player, in my opinion. I, I look at him, you know, I think I hear a lot of opposition and even some Arsenal fans. You know, they don't rate him as. And I think. I think. I think that's also because we have got Kaya Saka, who's just. You know, he's also just unreal. Um, so it feels like a lot of the time, people underestimate or underappreciate Martinelli. But I, I, I would honestly, I put him up there with one of the best wingers, in in the league for sure. Let's, let's okay. Let's talk about Raya. I want to talk about Raya because right. Raya. Yeah, so Raya was playing dangerously in, I felt like, in the beginning. But it's it's almost seems as though Arteta, well, it doesn't seem as so. It's almost confirmed, in my opinion, that 
he wants his goalkeeper to do what Raya did. You know, even though Raya got pressed by Alvarez and it was almost a goal, it was almost like Arteta was like, no, no, keep doing that. We want, we listen, we, we want to bring that pressure on, you know. Um, listen, we've talked about this in previous pods, so we don't want to sound like a broken record, but it's just, you, you can see that even when he gets pressed, and even if he does lose the ball, like at that point when Alvarez presses him and he loses the ball, he, he still just keeps doing it. He's like, no, 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 we're not stopping. Like, we're gonna, I'm going to keep playing the way I play. And I think that's something that Aaron Ramsdale needs to either probably learn or adapt to because I honestly don't see him getting back in the team unless he starts doing that. Um, but I guess, what did you make of Raya's performance? And, you know, did you feel as though... Ramsdale should have started, or are you kind of, you know, in hindsight, okay with Raya's display? It was a stressful few minutes, certainly, uh, in the first half when Alvarez pressed him, and shortly shortly after that, he looked very vulnerable. Uh, also, Arsenal did concede a champ- Champions League goal off a bad kick out from Raya last week. Uh, so, but. It, you're, it does clearly seem to be the way Arteta is setting up this team. The other side of this argument, whilst it's stressful to watch, is there's a lot of times when Arsenal get to keep possession and keep good possession because they're effectively uh, playing 10 outfield players against 9 outfield players after Raya has passed because he's drawn one man out of position. <clears throat> so that does seem to be the way they're doing it. Clearly, Arteta's preference is... We might leak a couple of goals a season from this, but we'll make up for that by not conceding because we've kept the ball instead and been able to move the ball and gain our own attacking possession. It's stressful to watch, but I do think Arsenal gained from it probably 15 or 20 separate occasions. They were able to pull Man City players out of position by having Raya keep the ball and even though the pass was on he waited until someone tried to press him before he passed it then enabled the people like Ben White Sinchenko to push on get the ball onto Rice and then play play from there it meant there was somebody open and the play could happen I don't like it but personally it stresses me out to watch but it did seem to work and you can't be that critical of a goalkeeper when they keep a clean sheet at the end of the day. <clears throat> I think Raya is going to be our starting goalkeeper unless Ramsdale gets a bit calmer in short passing when he's being pressed. As shot stoppers, I think they're comparable in quality. Maybe if anything, I'd give the edge to Ramsdale, but Raya is a very good shot stopper. And what he gives us in possession it is... Arteta's plan. You've got to trust the process, I suppose, with Arteta. That's what they say. I think with Raya, one thing about Raya that I will say is when it comes to crosses, I feel like he's a much more, he's better in, in collecting crosses or balls that are coming in from overhead um, than Ramsdale. I think that's something else that he does really well. It almost feels like, and, and I, I think in part, that's why when Arteta first came to the club, he wanted Raya. Because what I think that allows us to do is because he's able, rather than you know palming the ball behind for a corner or palming the ball you know back out into a dangerous area, either you know in the in the penalty box or even you know 
past the penalty box, I think what it does, it, it allows you to get the possession back. You know, if, if you have a goalkeeper that's coming out and he's grabbing boys, he's not dropping them, he's not you know punching them, he's grabbing them, he's holding on to them, then what does that mean? That means, okay, you've got possession back. And once again, you know, obviously we know how Arteta wants, a, wants the team to play. He wants them to be a, a possession-based team. So Rye gives you that. He's like, no, no, I'll come, I'll grab the ball. All right, let's go again. And yeah, of course, you know, there are times when he kicks the ball long. It doesn't quite go to where he may want and, you know, possession might get turned over. But that, I think that's also, you know, part of the reason why you look at some of the signings Arteta has made over his past, you know, three, four years now at Arsenal. You know, we're talking players that are strong. They have a certain height. I mean, Havertz, you know, the height of Havertz. You're buying players like Rice, yeah. You know, th these guys, they're able to win. The, if, you, if you do go long, they're able to win the, those balls. Um, and I just think, yeah, I think that's just, it's all part of Mikel Arteta's plan. And it wouldn't surprise me if that's the case because Arteta does seem like a manager who's very much into the weeds and into the details, the minor details, the, the real minutiae of you know how to manage a team um you know i remember like when not, not not to move ahead here but there was a point where once all uh once, once we, before we scored the goal um you could see arteta was telling tomiyasu to be basically next to Havertz. he puts his fingers together to say listen you're up top right next to him and then sure enough, Partey pings the ball to, to Tomiyasu, who's made this run. I mean, he's playing a left-back, and he's made this run to the point where he's basically playing in the number 10 position. And all of a sudden, he passes the ball to Havertz, and then Havertz passes it back to Gabriel, and we score. You know, that those are the little sort of details that Arteta just sees, like which I think a lot of managers either don't or, you know, just, I mean, maybe it's too much detail. You, you could potentially argue that, but he does see that, that detail. And I think Raya was part of the reason why he wanted him when he first came to the club because of those little details. Yes, I mean, it must be <clears throat> said, and a lot of clubs would not agree with this statement. They wouldn't make the statement about their own management. Almost all of Arteta's transfer business he has done, both in and out since he has come in, has ultimately been proven right. Uh, it's too early to judge people like, say, Havertz and Rice, who have only had 10 games. But he got rid of Aubameyang at the right time, for example, uh, Mesa Ozil. These players did not go on to play well for other clubs. And the players he has brought in and brought up into the first team, the players like Ben White... Uh, lots of people were very critical of the signing of Ben White, said they overspent. Uh, but it was all of those people have gone quiet now. One of the best right backs uh, in the league now. Exactly. You wouldn't... 50 million is an absolute bargain in hindsight price for oh, Ben man. White. Absolutely. When you look at some <laughs> of the other prices for some of the defenders, oh my God. Exactly. Uh, all of Arteta's businesses, not absolutely all of it, but in general, the moves Arteta have made have proven good. Raya is the second goalkeeper that Arteta has signed. Ramsdale was signed when Arteta was manager and people thought that was an odd signing. People thought we should have stuck with Leno or played Martinez but Ramsdale was a very good goalkeeper for us. So clearly Mikel Arteta can sign a goalkeeper and I think we'll, we'll, the reasons you mentioned are probably a, 
certain part of it, it does give Arsenal more possession. If you can turn a cross or a long pass into the box, into your own box, I mean, into attacking possession quickly because your goalkeeper catches it, not only is that possession that it gains you, it's good attacking possession. It's an opportunity to counter-attack. And if you get, you know, an extra three or four of those a game, a, chance, a team like Arsenal should be converting like one in ten good counter-attacking opportunities. There should be a goal one in ten times. If we get an extra three or four of them a game, then that can easily be eight or nine goals a season. And that's a couple of extra wins, and we only need a couple of extra wins from last season to be league champions. So I do think this is one of the minutiae that Arteta is looking into. And I, I hope it proves right. Everything else Arteta has done, we've not seen Arteta sign a player and them have a significant run of games and not perform. So if Raya does, if Raya does that, if it maybe Havertz will, uh, Rice I think is quite likely to. Will that's all we need to win the league? Yeah, and I, I think just to get to your point about you know, the signs that he's made, you know. I, do you think that's mainly or partly because of his ability to coach players? You know, I think that probably has a large part to do with it. I think that's probably got a large part to do with why so many of the players he's signed have been successful. Also, obviously, you know, identifying players through, you know, um, your scouts and, and, and having, I guess, that understanding through data that, you know, the, this this type of player is the kind of player that I want. And, but ultimately, you know, there have been players that Arteta have signed who haven't been the finished article. They've had, I guess you could argue, the talent, but ultimately he's had to sort of mould them into the player that they've ended up becoming. So do you, or do you think it's a bit of both? I mean, it probably is a bit of both, but what do you reckon in, like, in terms of, you know, Arteta as a coach and his ability to look at that data and to sign the player that shows the promise that they can fit into his system? Oh, I, I, think it's, I think it is both. Um, I think a kind of third aspect to it is his personal experience as a player. Um, very few managers have act- were actually consistently high-level players for long for long years. Like oh, Pep Guardiola, obviously was, but the vast majority of managers uh, t- weren't top quality players like Arteta was. Arteta was never considered the best player in the world. He was never going to be named in the Premier League team of the season but he was consistently playing for Arsenal he won FA Cups for Arsenal he knows what goes on on the pitch and what's what makes the difference because he's been up close to it hundreds of times so he can use the data he can use the fact that he's a good coach to entice players in it would be a good time to sign for Arsenal wouldn't it realistically if you're an up-and-coming football player if you're good and playing well for whatever club you're at and you want to be a better football player than you are right now would be a good time to sign for Arsenal. So he's able to attract players. He's brought the best out of players, players like Bukayo Saka, Gabriel Martinelli. Um, he's brought the best, he's brought the best Odegaard. out of them. Odegaard. Exactly. Um, those three and Saliba were our best players last season. Right. When you said earlier that Martinelli is underrated, you, you might be right, but he's not underrated by me. Uh, I think Martinelli, Odegaard and Saka are our best attacking players. And I think that Saliba offers something defensively. 
that no other player does. Uh, Arteta is able to bring in the players, and he hasn't really had a major flop yet. Right? Vieira hasn't produced in the way we was hoping he would. Trossard maybe not either. But these weren't big money signings, not by the standards of modern football. And his his big money signings like Ben White have proven right right signings. And we'll see about Havertz. Rice looks very good early on. It's a bit early to judge either of them, but Rice has made a very good impression. And Havertz is starting to find his feet a bit, I think. Uh, it's not quite been as easy for Havertz as it has been for Rice, but he's scored a goal even though it was a penalty. He's got an assist. He's quite good off the ball, and he provides a certain directness in the way we play. When he came on, it provided extra options, like you pointed out with uh, Tommy Isu playing next to him. It's all coming together. We ha- Arteta hasn't done any very bad transfer business. I'm racking my brain trying to think of anything. There's not been any really bad ones. Whereas if you look, Chelsea have had, in the same time period, have had dozens of terrible transfers. Man United have had half a dozen bad transfers. Right? Liverpool have had a couple of duds. Man City have a done as very badly. Man City haven't had many duds, to be fair to them. But most Calvin of the Phillips. top clubs... Calvin Phillips. Yeah, okay, Calvin Phillips. But City can afford one expensive player they don't play much. He's not yeah, had many bad performances. They just haven't really played him. Um, so, it's it, Arteta is done by standards of most teams. When you see podcasts from other fans, if you listen to Man United fan podcasts or Chelsea fan podcasts, uh, to an extent, Tottenham and Liverpool, they're often very critical to transfer business that club does. We as Arsenal fans don't really have anything to moan about from the club's recent transfer business. Uh, the times we have moaned, we've been proven wrong. Right? We moaned about Aaron Ramsdale. We moaned about Ben White. And we were proven wrong. So hopefully we're, right. we're going to be right not to moan about Kai Havertz. And it'll uh, it'll come it'll come good. That's how it's looking. Yeah. So do do you feel? I guess just talking about Kai Havertz. Do you feel like he's now, like you said, he got he's got that goal. Yes, it was a penalty, but still a goal and, and an assist. Do you think, especially with that assist, you know the way he held up the ball. He he was under pressure as well, and he held up the ball. You know, you could argue it was it was a weight, perfectly weighted. Uh, back pass to Martinelli. Obviously, Martinelli does most of the work, but do you feel like Havertz is now starting to find his feet a little bit? I think so, yes. It'll take a bit of time. I'm much more impressed with his good pass to Martinelli for that assist than I was with him scoring a penalty. Uh, whilst it was good that he broke his duck with the penalty, that assist was his first you know, truly good goal contribution he's had for Arsenal. Uh, but he does provide something. Havertz, he provides a height, a directness to our midfield and our attack. He's good if you're going to play one striker and you play him in midfield. I don't think he was effective playing as a striker. It didn't work when he was at Chelsea. It didn't work when they tried it early on in the season for Arsenal. When we said we didn't start particularly well for the season, partly Havertz was playing up front then it's not just his fault but that is what was happening and I don't think that's the right position for him but I hope Havertz will prove very good with the current Arsenal squad if everybody's fully fit 
playing well, you have more than 10 outfield players who are too good not to play. So someone's not going to be holding down a place in the starting 11. And it's hard to see how that person isn't going to be Kai Havertz. But it, it, Here's what it is. I hope I was wrong about Ben White and Ramsdale. So that my instincts to be critical of Havertz's performances, I'm gonna hold off on them. I think he does have the chance to really be a great player. He's shown what he can do. We've mentioned before he's shown masses of potential in other leagues, and he's hold up play and that for that assist was brilliant. If he can start doing that a lot more, if he can get. 15 assists a season from doing passes like that, then that'll be fantastic. And that is within the realms of possibility. I do think that was his first truly good Arsenal game, that City one. Yeah. And yeah, and what a time. What a time to, I guess, do it, really. Um, uh, but look, let's talk about. I know well, we've almost said this on every podcast, but. We got to talk about Declan Rice, man. Just this guy, you know. You you mentioned before about how you know it's a good time if you're a youngster wanting to play for Arsenal or sign for Arsenal because of Arteta and the way he's coaching his players and the way he's sort of turning them into you know really good, some would argue world class players, and that's probably part of the reason why Rice signed for us. Um, but you know, once again, you know, we missed we were missing Partey for a large chunk of that game. But, it, it, and I mentioned this, I think, last time, it didn't feel like we missed him. You know, he, that, that's how good Rice was. I mean, there was a, a couple of times where he ran back and just stole possession of a Man City player and made it look so easy. Um, almost, you know, similar to how he stole possession of Partey when we went away to West Ham and we drew. Um, you know, just his ability to kind of run back and, Pick, almost pickpocket the opposition. That's what it feels like when you see him do it. He just pickpockets him, gets the ball, and then gets on the half turn and sprints forward, finds a pass. And you just think, wow, you know, this guy's unreal. Um, but what did you make of, I guess, Declan Rice's performance as well in this game? Um, and I guess, how would you surmise his performance so far for Arsenal? I think Rice has been fantastic so far for Arsenal. I think he's only had. I think it's only been about ten games, give or take, one or two. Uh, he's played for Arsenal so far, but he has looked very good in every game. I think the reason we don't miss Partey as much when Rice is playing is straight up. Rice is better than Partey as an overall central midfielder. Uh, Declan Rice is better than almost any player in the world at the moment in his position. Uh, I think part of the reason Rice is wanted to sign for Arsenal and has come here to play for Arteta is because he's very keen on being a regular starter for England. And there's a player called Jude Bellingham, you might have heard of, who plays in basically the same position as him and who plays for Real Madrid. So if Declan Wright, maybe they will both start for England, but for Rice to have any chance of being in serious England contention, he has to absolutely be playing at the top level. Uh, otherwise, the guy playing for Real Madrid will get picked. So I think Rice is doing everything he can to have the best career he can. It was the right thing for him to move. I think he's 24. 
was the right time for him to move to Arsenal after having three back-to-back really good seasons for West Ham and getting several international caps. I hope that he spends the next seven years, ideally, eight years at Arsenal and wins many trophies. He is an all-round fantastic player. I think so far this season, our best players have definitely been Rice and Odegaard. Those two together have been the reason we've won quite a few of our matches. And the way Rice wins the ball back on the turn, gives to Odegaard, and he's the play he provides, particularly when we have Martinelli and Saka both playing, means that Arsenal are almost impossible to defend it when they win the ball back on the counter-attack. It's not just the way Rice wins the ball back, it's the way he then quickly moves it on, potentially backwards often to like the defenders, and then forwards again, Which and it means that Arsenal are so dangerous on the counter-attack and if Arsenal get 1-0 up, Declan Rice is an incredibly dangerous player because you have to push on, so you have to get bodies forward. And when he wins the ball back, you've got numbers forward. Players like Martinelli and Saka are so dangerous on the break that it becomes almost impossible to consistently defend them without fouling them. And that's that's where we've been. And Rice was fantastic against City, another Easily a 9 out of 10 performance from Declan Rice. Don't think there's a, a team in the world Declan Rice wouldn't start for. There's, I'm trying to manifest, you know, if we are to sell Partey in the summer, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, we can, who knows, maybe maybe Bellingham has a falling out with, I don't know, Real Madrid or something, and then we can just kind of like swoop in and be like, oh, yeah, this has come to us, man. Look, you know, and I'm hoping that and what I'm trying to manifest is okay. If we can win the league, then it just shows we are here, you know. Or if we can win a major trophy of some kind, you know. If 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 we won the Champions League, I think that would be, oh, that'd be amazing. But you know, if we if we if we can just manifest something like that, I mean, could you imagine a midfield of Rice and Bellingham, like oh, and Odegaard? Oh my goodness, oh, uh, that would be un. Unbelievable. Um, look, Optimistic. Yeah, but yeah it would. It would be good. I think more likely. I think if Partey leaves, I think we'll see Havertz starting more, or possibly Fabio Vieira. Yeah, probably. You're, you're most probably on the on the money there. Uh, look, I want to talk about the Kovacic the situation with the yeah, the tackles on Odegaard and Rice and the the yellow should it be a red card. But before we do, I just want to also discuss the substitutions by Arteta because for me, I thought he got it spot on. I mean, I just thought what he what he did was when he saw what Pep was doing, you know, when Pep brought on Doku, he immediately took Zinchenko off and brought on Tomiyasu. And so Pep moved Doku to the other side to go up against Ben White. And I just thought, you know, when you think about last season, you think about Zinchenko in the Liverpool game away at Anfield. It, it, that, for me, it almost felt like that was a learning moment for Arteta, for Arteta. And you could almost see in this game that what happened in that game, he he learned from. And he actually made a change in, in term, to, to actually counter what, the opposition were doing, but 
Yeah, just want, I just want to talk about, I guess, some of the, the substitutions. I thought every substitution, I mean, well, every substitution was a part of the goal. Um, so, you know, th- that just tells you just how, I guess, spot on those subs were. But um, what did you make of, this, of the subs? And, and how did you think, in terms of tactically, how did you think it, it sort of changed the game or had an effect on the game? Well, it was... Uh... They clearly worked because we won. And as you said, uh, the four substitutes that he brought on were all involved in the build-up to the goal, except for Martinelli, who scored it. So all four of them were part of a goal. And so they clearly were the right substitutes to do. I think what you pointed out about how he brought Zinchenko off for Tommy Iasu, based on how quickly Arteta did that, it must have been a premeditated move. It's the only way I can think of it. He must have correctly anticipated that Pep would do that and had his counter substitute ready to ready to go. Yeah, you're probably right. And to be fair, Tommy Asu wasn't available against Liverpool, let me just say that, because he obviously he was injured. But yeah, you're probably right. And I think you would you also also as well, um Arteta probably knowing that he had Tommy Asu on the bench this time probably thought, I'm not gonna make I, I don't I don't have to make that same mistake because I've got him here so he can do that you know exactly and the substitutes were is an interesting tactical element of it i felt that the balance of the game was so that man city were probably just about dominant in the first half and then from the second half in the beginning of the second half arsenal were clearly the more aggressive team clearly more likely to score main nil nil and then it kind of stalemated then the substitutions all occurred relatively quickly from both teams, and then Arsenal were the, had the upper hand again. So <clears throat> the balance of the game changed positively in Arsenal's favour from the substitutes. And it's weird to feel that Arsenal had the better bench than Man City. We think that Man City are a team with all their infinite oil money and all the players they've got, that they would have the better bench than any team in the league. But the players Arsenal brought on, we brought on players like Kai Havertz, we brought on Gabriel Martinelli, we brought on Tommy Iasu, Partey. <clears throat> the players Arsenal brought on are better players than the players Man City brought on. So it was it's nice to have that squad. It was it must be very nice for Arteta to be able to bring on players like Kai Havertz and Gabriel Martinelli, Tommy Iasu, Thomas Partey. Those are the four he brought on. Those are players that would start for almost any other team in the Premier League. And Martinelli, if he was fully fit, I think would start for Arsenal. But the other three are players who probably aren't guaranteed starters for Arsenal currently and would all be starters for almost any Premier League team. That depth is going to be what makes the difference, not just to cover us when injuries occur, and we have to rotate our squad, but also the players to come on and make a difference in big games like Man City, that that really is what wins your leagues, right? That you can win an individual game with a starting eleven, but it's a whole squad that requires required to win any tournament. And our squad players, the player like Kai Havertz, for any criticism anyone may have, is a very good player to bring off the bench. Yeah, definitely. Um yeah, I agree with all that. I mean, just we, we just we have such a we have such depth in our squad now, and we're able to you know rotate so many 
players in so many positions. And when you think the fact that Timber's still injured, you know, when when he comes back, I mean, there's obviously barring that ACL injury having a huge effect on his confidence or or on his ability, you know, you'd argue he'd probably come back in and start as well because he looked phenomenal when we in the warm-ups and in, even in the, the first half of, of the first game of the season, he looked unbelievable uh, inverting in on on the right and, and doing what he was doing. But I just, I just want to talk about as well just some, some of the tactics before we get on to the Kovacic situation. It, it, it seemed as though Partey, uh, Arteta, it seems as though Partey was, a very, was told to stay, you know, almost right, right next to Ben White. It's like Arteta basically said, you know, because when he switched, once he put Tomiyasu on and Guardiola switched Doku to go onto the other side to go up against Ben White, it's almost as if because of that, Arteta was like, okay, Thomas Partey, you got to stay back a little bit and don't go too far forward. You got to, you know, to almost kind of protect because obviously Ben White had been playing the whole full game. You know, Doku's got pace. Just stay back, help him out if need be, and maybe just kind of ping passes from like from deep, which is what he did for the goal. If you think about, you know, the the pass from Tomiyasu, the pass to Tomiyasu, you know, he kind of just kicked it from long, and I think that there was kind of that knock-on effect as well with how because they switched they switched side, it meant that Foden had to go onto the right, and Foden, you know, he's he's not really a winger. You know, he doesn't really keep the width like a Grealish, you know, and, and which is one thing, you know, why why he didn't bring on Grealish, I don't know. Maybe he had an injury, but Foden wants to come more inside. And I think because Foden wants to come more inside, it allowed Tomiyasu to actually run upfield because he didn't have he didn't have to stay back because Foden was sort of tucking in a bit more rather than what Doku was doing, trying to stay wide and, you know, run the channel on the wing. So that kind of ha- so it's just funny how you see that kind of knock-on effect, where because of Foden's positioning and listen, maybe look, maybe like you said, maybe this was a tactic and, and Arteta knew exactly what Guardiola was going to do. I'm not sure, but when you look at how it all played out, it was almost like it was masterminded because you just you think, okay, they're going to bring on Doku, he's going to go up against Sinchenko. We'll take off Sinchenko because he doesn't have the legs. Let's be honest. He doesn't have the speed. He's not really like a, a, a Ben White or a Tomiyasu. Put Tomiyasu there. Doku gets switched. Partey stays deep to nullify Doku or to at least help Ben White to nullify Doku. Foden comes inside. Tomiyasu says, okay, well, Rice has got you covered. We've got Saliba. We've got Gabriel. No problem there. I'm going to go forward. Arteta's telling him. He's putting his two feet. I don't know if you saw when Arteta put the two fingers together. In that, in oh, that I replay, did. yeah, I know yeah. Exactly. he's telling he you see him. He yells, "Tommy, Tommy!" and he puts his two fingers together to say, "Listen, you stick with Havertz, and we're going to go long to you." And it's exactly what happened. Exactly, like, and it was literally seconds. It was seconds after he did that. You know, it, the ball goes to Partey. White. It's almost and another thing too. It it looked like White noticed it. It's it's, it's almost as if White knew as well. He was, so he passes the ball back to to Partey. Partey looks up. He sees it pinpoint accuracy with the pass. I mean, honestly, that was on a on a dime on the head of Tomiyasu, drops it to Havertz's feet, Havertz passes it back to Martinelli and it's a goal. And you just think, man, you know, when you look back at that, you just think of that sort of those sort of half positions and those little tactical changes and those 
directions. It was just in that moment, those few seconds, it was just so fascinating to watch. And because the game was so cagey and because it was so back and forth, it just, I just thought, yeah, you know, it's an unbelievable sort of uh, just a tactical sequence, I guess you could you could say. Um, but okay, look, you know what? Let's talk about, I guess, the elephant in the room once again. I mean, we talked about this last time about VAR and all this, but Kovacic, should he have been sent off? What are your thoughts? Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> we, won't, we won't go on and on about VAR like we did last time and how it should be used more similarly to how it is in rugby union, I think was the best examples for game most similar to football. But yes. let's not go on and on. Um, but Kovacic should have been sent off. Right? The, the first foul he did on Odegaard, for which he received the yellow card and was checked by VAR as a potential red card and then stayed as a yellow, I think that's, you could argue that's the correct decision. As an Arsenal fan, I wanted that to go the other way. I wanted it to be a red card. But having calmed down a bit, I can understand why it's only a yellow. We have seen this season very similar foul to that Kovacic one be given reds. But it would have been a bit soft for a red card. The second foul he did, only a couple of minutes later on Declan Rice, was almost an identically bad foul. Though. It, was, it wasn't absolutely the same, but it was equal almost identical in how severe a bad foul it was. And that that second one on Rice was not a second yellow card and a red is just the wrong decision. And it the rule that VAR is not allowed to look at second yellow cards is almost as ridiculous as that they're not allowed to stop play once they realise that the wrong decision has been made that affected Liverpool. Uh, both both rules are absolutely absurd. If you're going to have video assistant referees and have the idea being that they make the game better, that's the whole point, to have these ridiculous rules where they're not allowed to be used in certain instances is just absurd. It just means that we get frustrated that it's applied inconsistently and the VAR is applied inconsistently. If you get a straight red card, it VAR can check it, but if it's a yellow, they can't. So, and like, if the there's a communication breakdown between the referees, and that means that the wrong decision has been awarded, they can't stop play to award the correct decision. These rules are being applied. In, the rules are inconsistent. The rules themselves do not apply consistently to the game. Yeah, it's just ridiculous. Did you, got, did, you hear, did you hear the audio? The audio from the PGMOL for the um, Liverpool. Uh, yeah, did you actually hear the audio? Yes, my God. absolutely. They they realised it's wrong, and they've realised it's wrong by the time Liverpool get their throw in. At which point they should just stop the game and award Liverpool a goal. It's absolutely absurd that they didn't but, uh, do that. For me, one of the things and... was that it's it just listening to the audio and how like convoluted and how almost like it's just like it's it's almost like they're in a mad rush. You know, like they they they. they, they they're trying to figure out what to do like in real time, but it's but not like, it doesn't seem like there's a process, you know, it's almost like it, it just, it felt, it just felt like uh, someone who was new to the job. That's how it honestly felt. Like, you know, when someone's new to a job and that you can tell that they're inexperienced, it just, it felt like that. And I'm not saying that they are, they, they might be very experienced, but it's, it felt amateurish. 
Oh, it was it did it did feel very amateurish. I mean, we spoke about this at length last time and how they don't seem to be trying to do a good job. But one thing I didn't mention last time, and one thing that presu- I say maybe people don't follow rugby union, right? A lot of people don't. It's nowhere near as popular as football. But millions of people do follow rugby union. Millions of people have watched games of it. They must know how it works in that sport. If football referees don't know how this works in rugby, it's because they don't want to know. And the whole thing about the audio being released to the public and how that could potentially be controversial would have been a complete non-issue in rugby union because what the video referee says to the referee is broadcast live to the television audience. So as a result, the process is much more transparent and you don't get mistakes like that. I actually read somewhere to I think I was on it could look at this could be wrong I'm not sure if this is true but apparently the FA said that they want to bring in um the 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 audio live and the footage live into into the stadiums when things are happening and the PGO the PGMOL said no we're not going to do that I mean that doesn't tell you that doesn't tell you just how incompetent and just how like I don't want to say scared but I can't think of a better word of you know, or I guess being found out, it's you know, I just oh, it's so bizarre. It's like you know, in 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 rugby, like you mentioned rugby, that's what they do. It's all, it's literally like the whole world can hear what's happening at in real time, and it's so professional. It's so like okay, you know, we're checking this, and it's it's so it works so well. But it's like the, like you mentioned that they, they don't want to do it. Exactly, uh, I don't it, and either the PGMOL don't know that this works well in rugby union and that's why they don't want to do it or far more likely they do know that it works well in rugby union because millions of people know that it's not privileged information and they're just deliberately not doing the same thing it's deliberate in incompetence and it having it all broadcast live and done very transparently ends a lot of the controversy like people aren't restless. That's the kind of thing people are worried about. You can hear them saying things like, hang on, let me watch that again. Let me see it from a different angle, right? Which is a perfect, everyone accepts is a perfectly reasonable thing for a video assistant referee to say. And it ends all the controversy. There's never any of this, wait, what call was given? Um, one thing with VAR, even when it works well, is the terminology is very confusing uh, because they say things like, a goal is given and then they will say something like uh, VAR checking for potential uh, foul. And then it says like overruled. And then they're like, well, is that a goal or not? Because the term, the crowd are confused. The terminology is so confusing. It should yeah. just be like goal or no goal. Right. Offside yeah. or not. Right. They, they could use much more simple terminology uh, that wouldn't have made a difference for the Kovacic thing with Arsenal, but it would have made a difference for the Liverpool goal. If they were deliberately using simple terminology, was that a goal or wasn't it a goal? Was he offside or was he onside? They wouldn't have issues like that. And no, no. It, it is just they're deliberately choosing very confusing terminology for VAR, which is confusing even the referees, clearly. Uh, yeah. They're making it way more difficult than it needs to be. Yeah, I think... Um... Just getting back, I guess, to the the COVID church, I think you know, it seems like there's such an inconsistency as well as to what constitutes a second yellow card, because what and I think what really has to be defined, or at least greater than what it, what it has been already, is 
is is a second yellow. Now, obviously, a second yellow leads to someone getting sent off. But does a yellow card, whether it's first or the second, does it have the same value? Because if it doesn't have the same value, then that's fine. Uh, fair enough. But then your consistency and decision-making has to be that if the first yellow card is worth essentially less than the second yellow, because it, obviously you know that a second yellow is going to be ascending off, but it doesn't seem to be that doesn't seem to be the case. It's, it always seems to be that you no, know, a yellow card is a yellow card. It's it's equal in weight. So whether it's first or second, it doesn't matter. It, it's you know if, it, if that's a yellow card tackle, it's a yellow card tackle. I feel like there needs to be, I guess, some more clarity around that, because. Look, and, and it's fine. It's fine if, okay, if a, if a second yellow card means a player gets sent off, fair enough, then the second yellow card has more weight to it. But based on some of the decision-making, you wouldn't think that. So what is it? it uh, the, the letter of the rules is definitely that a yellow card tackle is a yellow card tackle. It doesn't matter if it's a first exactly. or a second yellow. Uh, e- exactly. But that doesn't seem to be the interpretation that some referees give. I don't think that's the interpretation that the referee in the Arsenal Man City game gave to Kovacic because the second tackle was as bad as the first one so it was it's not consistently done I think the solution really is more that I don't see why VAR can't be used for yellow cards right especially since you could play on you don't need to stop the game to check play play on let VAR make a decision and then tell the referee what that decision is yeah, I mean, referees always play advantage and then go back and give a yellow card anyway. So it's the same thing, really. Exactly. There's no reason that you need to know whether it's a yellow card or not before the free kick is taken. Right? There's no reason you need to know that. You can just take the free kick while VAR checks whether it should be a, a not a card, a yellow card, a red card. It wouldn't disrupt the game at all to have VAR do that. But let's not just gripe about VAR. Let's talk about talking about Arsenal. <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, look, we've been going for almost an hour. So let's... Well, let's just call it there because I think, yeah, like, like I said last week, we could probably go for an hour just talking about the incompetence <laughs> at the PGMOL. Um, yeah, look, um, obviously international break, so we're not, not going to have any fixtures for a couple of weeks. Uh, first game back is Chelsea at Stamford Bridge. Um, I think we'll win there. I think we'll probably oh, yeah. win maybe 3-1 or something. What, what What's your prediction for that game? Oh, Chelsea are in absolute shambles at the moment. 4-0. Four 4-0. Four, okay, well, you heard it here first then. 4-0. Um, this has been the Blackstock Triangle. Nelly, uh, thanks for joining me again, man. And uh, I'll see you next thanks time. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye.